Straight from Music City. Don't judge a book by its cover. A podcast for future ready librarians. Hey y'all, just a quick note before we get started. This podcast was recorded prior to all of the uncertainty we're currently facing in the world. And I know that this is a time of anxiety and stress and unknowns. And so I hope this podcast will provide you with some distraction that you might need and also support for when things return back to normal. So let's get into the podcast. This podcast, called Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover, a podcast for future-ready librarians, focuses on changing the perception of school librarians, improving instructional practices, being a collaborative partner, and is essentially just really great library talk. I'm Alyssa Littrell, District Librarian for Metro Nashville Public Schools, and I'll be your host today. Today, our guest is Madison Burgess, who comes from us outside the world of education. We talk about building your influence and getting what you want out of your library programming while still being a team player. We also discuss the importance of building relationships and how to have those tough conversations. I got so much out of this, and I'm excited to take what I learn and implement it, and I hope you will be too. Madison is a Tennessee native who left to attend The Ohio State University, where she earned her bachelor's degree in integrated marketing and history and her master's degree in strategic marketing and survey research. She began her career as a digital strategist for IBMIX, working with powerhouse brands like Victoria's Secret, Apple, and Wendy's to design digital strategies of the future. She is currently the managing partner of Panoramic Group, an insights to strategy consortium headquartered in Atlanta. In her spare time, she loves to travel the Rocky Mountains with her husband, David, and spend time with their five rescued dogs, Lady, Dixie, Libby, Colt, and Dinah. So, without further delay, please enjoy this episode of Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover. Tell us about your professional background. Well, I'm a marketing consultant, and I'm focused on insights and strategy, which really means that I answer the big questions that businesses face, and then I put plans in place so teams can use that knowledge to gain success in market. I started my career on the agency side at IBM IX, working alongside big retail brands like Victoria's Secret, Bose, Wendy's. My role was to develop digital strategies and then execute them. So that might mean building apps or websites or social media campaigns, anything online. I then moved to the corporate side and worked for several brands in-house, building their marketing capabilities before going back to the consulting side, which is where I am now. I'm the managing partner at an insight to strategy consortium called Panoramic. So what are you most proud of? The first cool thing I ever worked on was the launch of Victoria's Secret Sport. At the time, it was branded VSX, and it was just launching. My job was to figure out how to help the brand get noticed and stand out among the stiff competition in the athletic wear space. Lululemon, Nike, store brands. It was a very competitive category even a decade ago. And launching a new brand, even if it's under the umbrella of an established brand, takes a lot of creativity and risk mitigation. There are so many unknowns in the beginning, and I loved strategizing which unknowns to answer and which to go with our gut on. So since this is a librarian podcast, we have to know, what's your favorite book? My favorite book? Wow. I, I really have two. 
My first is The Reluctant Fundamentalist. It's the first book that ever stayed with me, if you know what I mean. It was one of the first books I ever read that challenged my own views of world realities. And I still find it as powerful as I did the first time that I read it. If you haven't read it, it's a book about religion and race and violence between the Middle East and America. And the ending is left open for interpretation, which is really where the book's brilliance lies. My other favorite book is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. When everyone starts pouring into the castle for the final battle, when Harry discovers the resurrection stone, when the ultimate love story is revealed, it's just such a powerful ending to the series. I love it. It is a great book. And also, spoiler alert, if you've never read Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Who is going to be listening to this who hasn't read Harry Potter? (laughs) I don't know. There might be somebody. Um, Anyway, what does a typical morning look like for you? So if I have meetings or I'm up against a deadline, then my morning is not my own. And I spend it really heads down working on the key deliverables or whatever meeting I'm prepping for. But on other mornings, I spend an hour or two reading the news. It's really important to know what's going on with the world around you. And now it's so easy to curate the news you receive to the topics that affect you and your business most directly. Then I switch into what you might call my marketing time. I have a running list of contacts to reach out to from my network. It might be a happy birthday message, a meeting follow-up, or a request for a meeting. But I spend some time every day making sure I'm in touch with my network. So before you went into corporate America, you managed social media campaigns for major brands. What advice can you give librarians for marketing themselves on social media? You have to figure out what your audience wants to hear about, not just what you want to talk about. And I'll give you an example. A recent client of mine is in the baby monitor space, and they wanted to use social media to highlight the features of their monitors that they think are neat, that they think parents will care about, that they think make them different from the competition. But people weren't engaging with their social posts because what's engaging about someone talking about themselves all the time? People don't care about you They care about them. So we changed their approach to social media to focus on stories from real families who had used the monitors. That encouraged other families to write in and share their stories, and the level of engagement changed completely. So my advice to you is to first define your audience. Who is it? Parents, students, administrators, peers. Who is your primary target audience for your social media? And then What do they care about? And maybe you already know that. Or maybe it's going to be trial and error for you to figure that out. And trial and error is completely fine. But try different content topics and see what works best for you. So going off that, what is the best way to tell your story? Once you know what your audience cares about, then you have to weave yourself, your brand, what you do into that story. So going back to my baby monitor client, their audience ultimately cared about being good parents. So the baby monitor brand had to show how they were facilitating parents feeling good about what they were doing for their baby. That let the brand be the hero of the story their audience cared about. So how can you be the hero of what your audience cares about? That's how you win at social media or or really any media for that matter. So think about Nike. Nike sells clothing primarily. 
Their clothes are made of rubber, spandex, cotton, just like everyone else's. They don't talk about having the best cotton or a better spandex. If they did, no one would care. People don't care about you. Instead, Nike knows their audience is mostly made up of people just like you and me. We're not professional athletes, but we exercise. We may have athletic aspirations like running a marathon or lifting heavier weights or looking better in a swimsuit. Maybe we even daydream about winning the World Cup, but we never will. The story the brand tells is all about harnessing that inner drive to succeed. My favorite Nike ad ever was a little boy on the high dive looking down and being scared before he ultimately gets up the nerve to jump. Now, it's not an Olympic jump. It's not a spectacular jump in any way. He just got over his fear and did it. That's their story. Get out of your own way and get it done. And oh, by the way, wear our Nike shoes or socks or leggings or swimsuits while you embrace your inner competitor. So the question to ask yourself is what are you doing to facilitate the things your audience cares about? They don't care that your library got new books or through an awesome event, but they might care about the child who read their first book on their own or how the library is improving school literacy by getting students excited about reading. You're still ultimately talking about your library and what you are doing, but you're doing it in a way that tells a story that your audience cares about. So with all of the social media platforms out there, how do you find the one that's right for your audience? Honestly, it's a lot of tests and learns. So for instance, I have a business to business client who assumed that LinkedIn would be the right social platform for them because it's all about business networking. But in fact, they learned Instagram is the better platform to drive social engagement for them. So my advice is, is really to try several and see what works best. But first, you need to define what success looks like for you. If you don't know what success looks like, how will you know which social media platform is most successful for you? Do you want likes? Do you want people to comment on your content? Do you want people to share your content? Do you just want a lot of people to see your content? The answer to that will help you define success. And then you can try different social media platforms and see which does that best. So, for instance, what you may find is Facebook is great to get people to see your content, but Instagram is a better place for people to like and comment on your content. You should also consider different types of content. Do you have a lot of videos or pictures? Then Instagram may be better for you. Do you want to share more written stories? Then Facebook may be better. Do you have a mix of content types? Then try mixing them up. Put some things on Facebook and others on Instagram and compare your results over time. So switching gears a little bit, um, having difficult conversations can, well, is difficult by definition. So what is your advice to educators on how to handle these types of conversations? I really have three pieces of advice. And the first is, as hard as it may sound, you just have to get over feeling uncomfortable about having the conversation. If you feel uncomfortable, you likely look and sound uncomfortable, which communicates that you're not confident in what you're saying. So my suggestion suggestion is to practice what you're going to say and practice as much as you need before you feel good and calm about it. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that you try to memorize a script. That's not genuine. But practice using the words, saying them out loud, and imagining different scenarios that may happen. Just so the first time you have the conversation isn't the first time you've spoken the words out loud. Second, try to depend on facts and data more than emotions and feelings. For instance, if you start off by saying something like, what would make this school better is expanding the library. Well, that's subjective. Maybe I think longer math class would make the school better. Better is subjective. But you could say, our reading scores have not improved year over year as we had hoped. I'm proposing an experiment to expand the library for the next two years and monitor score growth. That's not an emotional or a subjective ask. It's quantitative. It's measurable. It's thoughtful. The final piece of advice is longer term, but you have to build relationships. Sometimes we have to say difficult things that may hurt someone's feelings or cause conflict. But if we have a good relationship with our colleagues, one that's built on trust and empathy, then when we say those things, they know we're coming from a good place. You can't ignore someone every day and then expect them to take your constructive criticism well or immediately give you what you want, for instance. If you haven't read it, I recommend Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was written decades ago, but so many of the principles still apply when building trust with our peers. So from your perspective, how do you get what you want from a situation without being demanding or unempathetic? It really goes back to what I said before about data instead of feelings. You need to arouse an eager want in the other person. What does that mean? You want to make them want what you want. And one way to do that is with measurement, facts and figures. So maybe you want a part-time library clerk to manage some of the day-to-day tasks like checkout and inventory. Well, that costs money and everyone wants more money. So how are you going to encourage your principal to give it to you? You could approach the ask by talking about how swamped the library is and how little time you have to support all the students. While that may be completely true, everyone may may think they're very busy. Or someone may think you actually aren't that busy because you get to take your planning period every day. Instead, make the case for why you want the larger budget and the clerk by tying back to your principal's goals. So you might say, you know, our goal this year is to improve our reading scores. One way to do that is to build a fierce love of reading in our students. I'm proposing a part-time library clerk so we can, one, increase our independent and choice reading hours in the library, and two, free my time to help more students on their journey to find books and authors they'll be excited by. If successful, our circulation numbers should improve. But in addition to those numbers, I'm proposing doing a pre-post survey of all of our students. At the start of the year, We'll ask all students to rate their love of reading on a scale of 1 to 10, and we'll ask them to name some specific books they love to read. Toward the end of the year, we'll ask the same questions again. Did the love of reading score improved? Are more students able to answer specifically what books they love? That's how we'll monitor our return on investment of the clerk and our growing focus on choice and independent reading. So you can see this type of proposal shows you're thinking critically about your school's goals 
and that you're a fully committed team member. You aren't only thinking about the library, you're thinking about how the library can support the entire school's goals. Also, recommending the survey shows your commit commitment to measurability and possibly gives your principal something to celebrate within the larger school system. So their next question is, setting boundaries in the workplace can be difficult. What advice do you have for saying no or setting boundaries when you really want to show that you're still a team player? First, it's important to have agreed with your leadership on what the scope of your responsibilities are and what your priorities are. Talented people will always be pulled in a million different directions, but you're only one person. So have an honest conversation with your principal about his or her goals for the year and what your priorities should be to facilitate those goals. Maybe the principal wants to show year-over-year growth of students using library resources. If you're progressing nicely toward that goal and someone asks you to help with a committee, for instance, you could say yes because you are a team player. But maybe some of your goals are lagging and you need to spend time strategizing how to do better. Then the answer to joining the committee has to be no. Just explain why your answer is no by saying something like, you know, one of our big goals this year is to show year-over-year growth of library use and we aren't where we need to be right now. I know you'll understand that I need to dedicate my extra energy brainstorming ways to encourage more library use, but please definitely keep me in mind for next year. Just saying no without a reason can make people think you aren't interested in helping out in other ways. But once you quickly explain the situation, people will understand why you're making the decisions you're making. But I want you to be careful, though. Not every decision you make requires an explanation. Sometimes the answer is just no. This is where that relationship building I mentioned is becomes so critical. If a colleague, for instance, is consistently asking you to help with something during your lunch or planning time, you deserve that time. And you shouldn't have to explain why you deserve that time. But after you say no, maybe you suggest grabbing coffee or lunch or taking a walk after school one day to discuss other ways you can help him or her meet their goals. This shows that you are a team player, but you're not a martyr and you don't have to be. Well, that is fantastic advice that I need to take myself sometimes. So our final question is, or we're coming to our final question. This podcast is called Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover, a podcast for future ready librarians. But we also know it's hard work. What advice do you have for school librarians, especially those that want to change the perception of librarians? You have to build your influence. Many times there are people with a senior title and then there are the people with the influence. These are often not the same people. You want to be an influencer. You build influence by building trust and you build trust by showing that you understand what the other person wants. And it's okay if you want something different than them, but showing you understand them puts you in a powerful place to build a bridge between what they want and what you want. Dale Carnegie, in the book I mentioned before, How to Win Friends and Influence People, writes that the way to influence people is to talk in terms of what they want, not what you want. Then you can tie up what you want with what they want. So first, decide what you want 
And you can't want everything. What are the few things you genuinely want? Now look around and see what your peers want. What does your principal want? What do your students want? What do their parents want? What does your director of schools want? And then think, how can you build a bridge between what you want and what they want? And then start doing it. And you don't have to do all of this all at once. Pick a few key audiences. Start with your colleagues and students, maybe, and then expand from there. It may sound time-consuming, but you'll likely find that many people want similar things, and some may even want the same things as you. One way to start this simply is something you may have noticed that I've done throughout this conversation, which is using first-person language. Us. We. Our. If you use the language, our goal, our mission, our work, it communicates that you do care, that you do see yourself as a team player. It may sound simple, but just changing your language can go a long way in building relationships with your colleagues that will ultimately build your influence today and in the future.